Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on the Criterion Collection and cinema. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss Mulholland Drive, a love story in the city of dreams. Betty Elms, played by Naomi Watts in a career-making performance, arrives in Hollywood to become a star but soon discovers a mysterious woman with amnesia hiding in her aunt's apartment. The unknown woman, who assumes the name Rita, enacted by the voluptuous Lara Elena Haring, has survived an apparent assassination attempt and now draws the hopeful Betty into a mystery as she tries to discover her true identity. Running parallel to Betty and Rita's travails is the story of film director Adam Kirscher, acted by Justin Theroux with a sense of bewilderment, who is besieged by ominous forces that threaten to shut down his new project. Hollywood dreams and nightmares collide when the story descends into madness and the very fabric of reality itself comes up for grabs as Mulholland Drive ventures into the surreal and illogical place of dreams. Writer-director David Lynch brings his usual style of offbeat sensibilities to the material in what was originally shot to be a TV pilot, but was turned into a feature film after ABC dropped the project. Garnering notices for its endlessly fascinating but ultimately impenetrable story, as well as the standout performances from its cast, Mulholland Drive is one of the most praised films from the first part of the 21st century, earning the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival and being hailed as the best film of its decade by the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, Cahiers du Cinema, Time Out New York, The Village Voice, and many more. Released by the Criterion Collection on DVD and Blu-ray in 2015, and now recently announced to be among the first titles to receive a 4K UHD release from Criterion, David Lynch's unique vision of Tinseltown is available for future generations to attempt to unlock its mysteries. Join Matt and me as we navigate the winding road of Mulholland Drive. Matt, as we begin our discussion here this evening, I thought it would be worth just uh, exploring our first viewings of this film. I uh, saw this 20 years ago this month. In September of 2001, I saw this film, and it landed right at the time when I think I was in my peak interest of David Lynch as a director. I just kind of gotten into his films over the previous couple of years with things like Blue Velvet and The Elephant Man. And Twin Peaks also was a huge thing for me at that time. And somewhere I read in one of the different magazines about Mulholland Drive coming out. It was going to be released in October. And it was hailed very strongly from Cannes. And then I happened to have an actual opportunity to see it before it was released. This is one of the handful of films I saw before it got a commercial release. I saw it at a special screening at the University of Minnesota. Uh, about two or three weeks before it actually premiered publicly in Minnesota. And it was a blast of a screening. It was a full house. It was just a bunch of college students. And it was really, really uh, an engaged audience that really got into the movie. And I fell in love with it as well and have continued to be in love with this movie for the last 20 years. Uh, And I know that I I won't be speaking probably all that objectively about it tonight, although I don't know if anybody really can because it's such a, a unique film. Uh, but I'd just be curious to hear uh, your memories of it. I think I showed it to you, if I'm not mistaken, back when we were in college. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think I first saw it on uh, on DVD. 
if I re- recall. I, I remember you being very taken with this movie, and I, this is around the time we first met, I think, right? I mean, this is this is fall 2001. This is right um, when we would have been starting college, right? Uh, yeah, no, this was... We probably met each other weeks before seeing this movie. Yeah. Or before yeah. I saw the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, it's a film I'm not in love with, I guess, like you are. I, I know it's a special film to you. I know you've been a big fan of it for a long time. And and I, I was kind of, I don't want to say dreading this conversation. <laughs> That's not the right word. I never dread our conversations. But I, I was kind of struggling with, you know, how, how am I going to approach this discussion uh, without sounding too dismissive of this movie or, or David Lynch in general? Um I, but we can get into that, I guess, as we go along. But I, my first experience with this film, I, I just really had no idea what to make of it, right? I mean, um, I, I'm sure I had seen at least one David Lynch film at that point, but I, I really wasn't exactly into his films. So this was a pretty startling experience. It definitely made an impression. I didn't quite know what I was watching, right? I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, th- this features his distinctive style, and I, I would agree with that, but it, it even kind of takes it further in some ways. I mean, there's there's a real sense of dark comedy to this film that I, I think resonated with me the most, and that, that's probably what I appreciated the most about it was just some of the offbeat moments in the film. Uh, I I think the attempts at more dramatic plot lines and elements fell a bit more flat for me. Um, but it was something that was a bit of an enigma, right? I mean, I remember at the time when it came out that it was something that did make quite an impact and a lot of people were trying to decode it and there were a lot of theories kind of uh, floating about I, but when I ultimately learned that this was a, a failed TV pilot, that made me look at it in a new way. And uh, revisiting it a few times over the years, I could definitely see how, okay, this is something that I think Lynch originally was trying to set up uh, to be a series, right? So a lot of the elements that I think people were were trying to decode were probably intended to be decoded later on in a in a potential series right so uh as you stated lynch you know went back and 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 completed uh, uh the picture as, as a feature uh when it was rejected by abc but uh it, it does make me wonder you know what was the the true intent of this film uh, but yeah, first impressions, I, I was intrigued by it. There were things I enjoyed. There were things I found annoying and pretentious and irritating. And I, But it still remained a curiosity to me, but not something I've ever really fell in love with. I was a huge champion, uh, as obviously has already been indicated. I remember following this film very closely and really singing its praises to anybody who had listened to me. I was that guy uh, at the time. And... Um, it's funny because on paper, you know, I wouldn't think it wouldn't seem like a very likely thing that I would be a fan of David Lynch. And yet I am. Yeah. I mean, not all of his films land for me. A lot of them do. Uh, and it's kind of funny because I would think that in many ways, his style of filmmaking, Matt, would be a little more up your alley in terms of more surreal and uh, nonlinear, elliptical than 
I might typically be interested in, but I know he's not really a director that you get caught up in, and I do for whatever reason. Um, what it was fascinating to me about this film, and uh, I think you know, you make a good point about just how do we try to interpret it, and make sense of it. At first, the reaction from almost everybody was, "I have no idea how to interpret this. What's real? What's not real?" How do I make sense of what's happening? Who these characters are? Which is the real character? Are they both real? Are they alternate realities? Are they... uh, Because it's just a very complicated story. And then I remember very clearly about seven or eight months after the film came out, there was this group of people online that were very convinced, oh no, we've got it figured out. It's really quite simple, everybody. And came up with this sort of dream theory that basically... The first part of the film is all a dream. The story that follows Betty Elms and Rita is a dream. Uh, that the later part that features Diane and Camilla is the uh, actual uh, reality. And uh, what we're seeing is the first part is the sort of projection of Diane uh, casting herself in her dream as Betty uh, and trying to make sense of a terrible situation through this dream. Uh, and everybody kind of ran with that interpretation for a while. But like you say... There's parts that just simply don't match up with that because it was originally conceived of as something else. And there's parts in the film that are very obviously set up for it to be a future series. Uh, The fact that Robert Forster, for example, is playing a detective. Yeah. I doubt he would have taken this part if he knew he was going to be just one scene and have a couple lines of dialogue and never come back again. Right. He was thinking he'd be a recurring character on a TV show. Uh, You have this hitman that shows up. He'll obviously come back later on uh, at the end, but one suspects that he was going to be a character in a TV show initially, and then he got, as this film morphed into a feature as opposed to a pilot, he got back back in in this different way, right? So, you know, it's, I think, a film that really poses a lot of questions about how do we try to interpret and understand cinema, precisely because of how it was made. It's really uh, been guarded by Lynch. He doesn't make it clear what his intention is, and he won't answer the questions about what's real, what's not real, for example. Uh, He even guards very closely what was shot for the pilot and what wasn't. Now, there's some stuff that we know obviously was not shot for the pilot. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to be completely confused on that. But there's certainly things that you don't know, right? Was that a a scene that was shot and then re-edited? Was that a scene that was simply shot after the fact. I mean, we just can't make sense of all those different things. Uh, And I think that makes the film very much, um, you know, a Rorschach of sorts. I think when people interpret this film, they're more or less telling you something about themselves as opposed to the film. And that to me is always a fascinating thing. I really like that in a movie when it's more my interpretation, my reaction to it tells me something about who I am as opposed to the material itself. I think there's a lot here to chew on is a lot to really think about but ultimately how I try to come down and and make sense of what I'm watching is going to reflect something of what I'm trying to bring into the material itself yeah you know when Lynch talks about this film and and you mentioned he's closely guarding its secrets etc etc that always came across as a bit disingenuous to me on his part I mean insofar as I just think it's very, very important to look at this film as what it is. It's a failed TV pilot turned into a movie. And I and I think a lot of the quote-unquote mysteries in it, again, are those threads that are being set up for future answers and uh, really 
come across as mysteries in the film when they're really not, right? They're just uh, untied future plot threads. And you can try to interpret them as, you know, something profound or, or something important, but at the end of the day, that's pretty much what they are. And I, I, I'm convinced that Lynch doesn't even know the answers to the questions that are being asked himself. I, I mean, he famously put this kind of cryptic list of clues in the original DVD release, and I still have that that disc uh, where you're supposed to kind of, you know, go through the film and consider these questions and and that's fine, and it's kind of fun, and it's kind of interesting to to consider these things. But uh, yeah, I really do again wonder: does even David Lynch have the answers? Um, and maybe that's not important ultimately. Like you said, I mean, this is a film that is very open to interpretation. I, I do think the dream interpretation of the film is the correct one. I mean, I, there have been other ones floated out there that. You know, oh, to say this is just a film about a dream is too simplistic and it's insulting to Lynch and, you know, and whatnot. But I, I think it's very obvious that's what's going on here. And and once you understand that, a lot of the surrealist, you know, um, absurd elements, especially in the beginning of the film, uh, become more palatable and more understandable. And... I, I do think that helps sell kind of the strange emphasis the film has on certain elements. I mean, I, I just think about how, you know, stylistically this film elongates moments uh, in a very bizarre way to build suspense. And it, just from a, a standpoint of language of cinema, it, it's kind of an interesting exercise. I mean, I, just that, for instance, the one uh, segment where Rita is opening her purse, right? And just the act of unzipping the purse is like this arduous, long, you know, process that involves several shots and reaction shots and cutting back and forth and, and these very uh, detailed, you know, close-ups of eyes and faces. And, and that's kind of a microcosm of, of this film in many ways to me. It's this elongation and uh, creation of suspense when there really shouldn't be any. And it creates this very surrealist kind of environment. Um, the, the espresso, you know, scene as well, just this idea of this, this guy spitting out this espresso and this napkin, and it, it becomes this just elongated, suspenseful sequence about an espresso. It's just like, what is this, right? What does this mean? And and I, I think a lot of these moments don't really mean anything. I, I, I think Lynch is almost playing a prank on the audience. Uh, but, you know, Lynch is obviously a very intelligent and artistic guy. And, and I, I have no doubt he has intent behind most of what we see on screen. But I'm not convinced he has intent behind all of it. That might be fair. I don't know that he does have an intent behind all of it, or it's also possible he shot it with one t intent and then re-edited it and came with a different intent to the material later on too, right? Yeah. I think your point is well taken that you have to see this as, yes, a failed television pilot turned into a feature film. I don't think that diminishes this film by, all, by any means. Some people might interpret it to mean that. I don't think that at all. I don't think this makes it less of a movie 
or less of a singular vision. I think it is a very singular vision and that from the ashes of a failed project, uh, Lynch was able to take new funding and new uh, material to be able to create something else, right? And to make it into something it wasn't originally intended to be, right? So that does involve retrofitting some things and realizing that the initial attempt by the actor or by the cinematographer or by the director himself in that moment, or even as a writer, uh, might have had to be retrofitted into something else that came about later on, right? So that's, I think, part of where the enigma does ultimately come in and why there isn't really any perfect, satisfying explanation of the whole thing. That all being said, I actually never have been sold on the dream theory of this. And maybe just for anybody who's watching this or listening to this podcast that hasn't seen the film, just we can explain a little bit just the, the rough sketch of this plot, right? We have our uh, uh, Laura Elena Haring character, Rita, is being driven along Mulholland Drive. It's going to be assassinated. An accident takes place. She then emerges from this and has no memory of who she is or what was happening, winds up hiding away in an apartment where, fresh off the bus, a little nice starlet Betty Elms who wants to make it into showbiz shows up to stay where her aunt is missing, and they meet each other, and Betty's tried to audition for a part, and Rita is helping her, and then she starts helping Rita try to solve this mystery. Uh, Alongside this is the story of Adam Kesher, the director played by Justin Thoreau, who has some kind of mafia boss types that are trying to force him into casting a certain woman in his lead role for his movie he's making. He's upset about this, uh, and he's being visited by strange, unclear who they are figures that will uh, force him into making this decision. And then as it seems that Naomi Watts's character of Betty has kind of landed the, this great audition, uh, which we definitely want to talk about that audition scene because it's one of the highlights of, of the film. Yeah. Um, they, they cross paths with Adam Kesher and everything starts to go crazy uh, after that. Uh, uh, Betty and Rita wind up having a lesbian love affair. They go to Club Silencio where there's this sense of everything's an illusion and there seems to be some kind of cosmic force at work with lightning and thunder and uh you know basically these convulsions that take place within betty and then they go in and they open up this box they find a key that opens up a box and then you delve into the box and out of it we come to find the same actresses naomi watts and laura elena haring playing new characters diane selwyn and camilla rhodes who are both actresses at this point uh, and it appears as though Diane is a failure, Camilla is the great success, and they're kind of auditioning for the same part that was uh, being discussed before that Adam Kesher is trying to uh, cast. And it appears, though, that you could say that what happened perhaps was that Diane reimagines herself as Betty in this dream to say that the reason she didn't get where she was was because of all these ominous forces, tries to take away maybe the guilt of having tried to kill uh, her spurned lover, Camilla, right? Uh, that she had put out a hit on her because you see this figure of this hitman that we see in the both the dream and this very comical, that very, I think, very darkly comedic scene where he has a botched hit. Later on, you see him meeting with Diane. Uh, 
anybody who hasn't seen this movie, I'm sure is already completely confused as to what the hell is going on. And congratulations, you have a sense of what it's like watching the movie. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think as I'm watching this film, it's entirely feasible to interpret the first part, maybe the first two thirds almost, as being a dream, and that final third is the reality. But it's also possible, and there's every bit as much reason to interpret the first part as real. And the last part as not a dream, but as a nightmare, right? I think it can go either way. And I don't think there's any more reason, one way to say one versus the other when you actually look at the material that's on the screen. And some people will point, well, yeah, but the the final part seems so much more realistic. Well, it does on one level, it does in the performances. But if you're watching the filmmaking, the editing, if you're watching the cinematography, all those things, it actually is much more dreamlike and illogical. Whereas in the first part, the filmmaking is much more straight and to the point, like a very straightforward kind of Hollywood mystery story. Uh, some offbeat things that are very much David Lynch's uh, brand of humor and just kind of his eccentricities. But still very linear, very straightforward, not dreamlike really at all. The performances, however, in the first part of the film are extraordinarily stylized. They don't feel very realistic. I mean, the, the opening scene with uh, Betty... Uh, the way Naomi Watts plays the part is brilliant, but it's also, if you don't kind of get what's going on, it's probably going to like lose a lot of the audience right away because she's so over the top. Oh, golly, gosh, gee whiz, won't that be the day, you know? And so it's, it is very much the performances that seem out of sync with reality in the first part, whereas it's the filmmaking itself in the second part that seems out of sync with reality, which is why I can't really say I feel comfortable saying I know for certain which part's supposed to be the dream, which part's not supposed to be the dream. And I think on one level, what Lynch is trying to get at here is that in a certain sense, they both are equally real and equally dreamlike or equally fantasy. Um, that he's really trying to pull back. And this is, of course, a, something that's been a part of his work. Very much Blue Velvet would have had this, where he's trying to get to the underbelly, you know, get behind the surfaces and get to the reality of what's going on. I think he's looking at LA, which is just by itself a very fake town. Uh, and which should be noted, there's obviously a lot of classic movie references. I mean, he's clearly inspired by, uh, by uh, Sunset Boulevard uh, in this film. Uh, as a matter of fact, the car that uh, Betty comes up to for her audition that's in the frame uh, when she gets to the Paramount Gates is the same car that was actually used in Sunset Boulevard, right? So he's very much interested in film and in Hollywood and in those sorts of things here. And I think he's kind of saying all of Hollywood is fake. And there's some elements of Hollywood that are very wonderful, over-the-top good, and you know, just the dream that you want. But there's also part of Hollywood that's an incredible nightmare that's the most damning, destroying thing in the world as well. And I think he's presenting both as equally real, equally... Uh, valid uh, understandings of what it is that go on that goes on in Hollywood. At least that's the way I think of seeing this film. Not so much about what's dream or what's not, what's real or what's a dream, as opposed to, in a certain sense, they both are dreams uh, that are reflecting different realities of show business. Yeah, I, I like that interpretation. I mean, I I think you make some good points that it can be made hard to make that distinction, right? I. Ultimately, it comes down to, for me anyway, the you mentioned the stylized performances, and and that really takes me out of the first part of the film without 
thinking of it as a dream, right? It's just so kind of over the top and unrealistic in terms of how the characters interact and, 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 um, the style of acting and, and there's, I don't want to say amateurish, but the, the, there's kind of a hint of an exploitative quality to the beginning of the film too, or to that first, um, uh, segment. And, and that, I, it kind of cheapens the experience in a way. I, I, I feel that way, I guess, a lot about David Lynch's films in general, but that's another conversation. Uh, but I, especially in this film, it, it, it creates this sense of, okay, you're watching something artificial, right? And, and maybe he's just making that comment about the artificiality of, of the show business in L.A. And, and he's clearly making a comment here on, as you said, the dark underbelly of, of Hollywood and of, of the movie business and, and this is kind of like the the Me Too movie before Me Too was a thing, right? I mean, there, it, it, there's a bit of that casting couch element. You mentioned the uh, audition. Very scene. much so, yeah, yeah. Which which we can, you know, I'll let you take us into um, as we discuss things here. But I, I think Lynch is sort of ahead of its time, uh, ahead of his time in a way by calling attention to a lot of these things in a pretty subversive way. But it's interesting to think of the ending as a dream as well. So, so your contention is that the entire film is a dream, essentially both parts. Or that maybe they're both different aspects of reality, right? I mean, that if you think about how sometimes, you know, when you're trying to recall a memory, of an event that took place, you you offer your memory of it. Someone else offers their memory of it. They're similar, but they're distinct at the same time, right? Now, there is only the one historical occurrence, but how we remember it or how we make sense of it can be slightly based on what angle I saw something at, how I picked up this detail versus that detail, right? It's not to say that one person's perception is the objective correct this is the way it was and the other ones is wrong it's to say that reality is so complicated that trying to make sense of it all uh is impossible to do maybe from just one angle and it's actually a variety of angles that gets you kind of more to the truth right i think that's what lynch is doing and of course being a a person that uh practiced you know kind of transcendental meditation i would think that would be very much his way of seeing reality you can agree or disagree with that way of seeing reality or understanding the world, but I do think that's how he understands it. And so if you're trying to make sense of his movie, I think that's a valid way to try to make sense of his movie is by appealing to that understanding of things. And I would say, yeah, I mean, I think you could equally say you could say one part's real, one part's dream. But I think you could flip that around, you know, just as much. I think you could say both are a dream. I think you could say both are reality uh, in many ways. Yeah, Naomi Watts is amazing in this film, though. I mean, I every time I have watched it, I've been pretty blown away by her performance, and I, I don't think anybody in the film comes close to to her her performance in terms of the quality. Uh, and she's a bit mismatched with uh, uh, Laura Elena Herring. Laura Elena Herring. Or Haring, yeah. I, she she really acts circles around her, I think. <laughs> and I understand that her character is supposed to be, again, she's supposed to be kind of stylized. She's supposed to be this femme fatale uh, with amnesia, right? I mean, that's kind of her role. 
And in a way, she's sort of this cartoonish kind of character in a way, and not cartoonish in, in terms of being over the top. She's just, I, I don't think she's really meant to be a fully developed character, at least in the beginning part of the film. She's more of a symbol in, in many ways. But um, by the end of the film, yeah, she becomes you know more more of a, uh, a real person in her interaction with um, Naomi Watts as, as Diane. But um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you have praised her, her performance as well. Uh, this really was a career-making moment for her. Oh, definitely. I mean, she even though she had worked for quite some time before this, nothing really clicked that anybody picked up with her, but no one's really, I think, forgotten her since this film, right? I mean, she's gone on to have quite a career over the last 20 years and been in very important movies, big budget movies, uh, very well-respected independent films. Uh, so she's had quite the career and a, quite a, a, an impressive career. I mean, she does good work. And I would say this easily stands out as her best performance. And I will, I can't argue with you that she is heads and shoulders above everybody else in this film. I actually think the others are good uh, in their roles. I think Justin Thoreau is very good in his role. He gives some great humor and he plays the 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 kind of the egocentric director very well. Uh, I think Laura Elena Haring's character, like you say, is more of a symbol, and I think she plays that fits that part very well. She plays it well, but it's not as interesting, right? The the real interesting stuff is all tied up in this Betty and Diane that Naomi Watts creates, uh, and so maybe we could just kind of delve into it because, like you said, she makes. She makes a lot of. She's asked to do a lot of things in this part, and it's it ranges very drastically, right? From those early scenes where it is so much like it's um, a almost a picture storybook uh, of sorts about her coming to Hollywood to make her way, and then moving slower and slower into being a kind of more broken and fragmented human being, right? Uh, and she captures every single modulation perfectly. I mean, she's every bit as good in those first scenes, and she gets the right interpretation for those first scenes as she does for the later scenes. Uh, and I'm sure it was a very exhausting and, and challenging performance to give, uh, but I think she she really does hit it perfectly. And the standout is that um, that casting couch scene, shall we say, which I agree with you, Matt. It's It definitely was Lynch being ahead of his time. It's, it's certainly... Everything we we've heard about in the Me Too movement is being depicted here in that scene, right? And it it really does play differently. I remember when I saw it in the theater, because I saw it a couple times in the theater. I saw it once with that advanced screening, and then again just commercially with another audience. Uh, the audience kind of seemed to laugh at it and kind of just think, "Oh my gosh, what a what a creep this guy was!" But also kind of laughed it off. Whereas now, I don't think you would laugh it off. I think you would. You'd, you'd appreciate the creepiness and the the uh, exploitativeness of this older actor kind of just like, we're going to play it close and just pulling her right in and then kind of yeah. making out with her a little bit in the midst of this audition, right? Uh, there's obviously some great humor. I mean, I think he captures right. There's the director that's completely out of touch and really is uninvolved and just not paying attention and just kind of giving really bizarre notes afterwards. Like, Really? really good you know, it's, uh, <laughs> that, but guy, it's, that guy's hilarious yeah <laughs> oh it's perfect yeah <laughs> but it's just i mean to see because obviously there's an earlier scene where she's practicing her audition with rita at that point right 
And the way she's interpreting there is very much makes the scene seem really stupid and like a soap opera and just like it's just a trashy scene, right? When it's actually in the audition scene, the way that dialogue is played, the way it's it's played out there is a lot more kind of heartbreaking and you know, intense and just creates a, a sort of a different whole idea of how the part is understood that's being auditioned for, right? And I think that's just a wonderful display for us to remember of how acting shapes a scene, right? How an actor chooses to do things will obviously give the scene a certain meaning and purpose. So I, I love the, the scene, not just as a showcase of Naomi Watts's own acting, but also as just kind of a, an actual really serious examination of how it is that acting shapes and molds character and story in a film. To me, that scene is, I, I, well, I just, I think it's a great scene. It might be the best scene in the movie, actually. I mean, uh, it really, uh, it's such an emotional roller coaster, that scene. I mean, it has that absurdist sort of humor. Uh, it has very awkward moments. It makes you feel kind of scummy, you know, watching this play out. And and then you're really wowed by um you know, Naomi Watts's performance for sure. Um, it's, it's a scene that, uh, I just find to be probably the most memorable, uh, in, in the whole film, but it, um, it really, you know, to me, it really reminds me that, I, that that segment is very likely the dream segment, because as you said, they, you do see them, uh, rehearsing this scene, right. And, 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 and Betty's acting talent just seems minimal at best during the the time she's practicing with Rita. And then all of a sudden in the, in the scene uh, with the actual audition, she's this Oscar-level actress and just knocking it out of the park, right? And and it's that, that leap in ability that seems to uh, add to that surrealist element of that part of the film. But, uh, yeah, I, I just have to mention that director again. That I just think he's absolutely hilarious you know the his comments uh what what does he say like uh forced but uh still humanistic i think is what he says (laughs) no no idea what that means but it does sound like something a director would say uh but yeah it's it's a brilliant scene for sure i'll push back a little bit on the idea that that kind of because i think you're you're right a lot of people might use that scene as the evidence of Clearly, she's projecting herself as this soon-to-take-over-the-world-Meryl-Streep kind of talent, right? Um, and then the whole point is, no, she just was never any good, and she creates this kind of false narrative that, oh, there's these powerful figures, these ominous forces of Hollywood that stopped me from making my big breakthrough, right? And so I'm, I'm a failed actress with failed relationships, and I'm miserable, and I'm going to you know kill myself kind of thing, right? But I think... I think the the scene doesn't quite necessarily lend that interpretation because if it all is a dream and the stuff that precedes it a dream, why would she have dreamed herself being so kind of bad and not understanding how to maybe do something unique with the material earlier, which is rehearsing with Rita? Why wouldn't she have had the understanding of the material then or the, the, the super talent then, right? Uh, so I just think that it doesn't quite match up that way. The other thing is that it seems to me that that scene could also be showing that, 
she may not be a good actress, but she is reacting to because the, the the other actor in there, the the old man, says acting is reacting, right? That's the thing he says, yeah. and he obviously pushes himself on her, and she becomes very much kind of relating to this assault of sorts. So, how much is the performance really a performance versus? I've been put in a very awkward and unpleasant situation, and I'm just actually kind of conveying that as I'm saying the lines as themselves, right? So I don't know that it's necessarily meant to be even that she herself has just brought this new interpretation to the material. It's that she might have been just forced into it because she was so shocked by what was taking place there, right? Um, so I don't know that it, it perfectly suits that. I mean, it's again, it's not... In, it's not an implausible reading of the scene, but I don't think it's a guarantee that that's what it means, right? Yeah. I, I do want to bring up Adam Kesher's uh, segments, though, because uh, it, to, to me, I actually find those parts more engaging, probably just because of the, the dark humor more than anything. I, because you're a Billy Ray Cyrus fan, let's be honest. <laughs> you, well, yeah, you discovered me. Uh <laughs> Uh, especially the scene with the cowboy I, is very, very funny to me. Just the, the delivery in that scene is, uh, I, I find very, very entertaining. But yeah, he's the perfect picture of this egotistical young hotshot director and and uh, it, just the dynamic he has in his scenes uh, and just how confused you know and and desperate he becomes and and he has this real habit of just vandalizing things throughout the film <laughs> uh he, he very calmly smashes the the gangster's uh town car or limousine or whatever it was and then uh yeah discovers billy ray cyrus with his wife and and calmly pours pink paint into her jewelry box and and he, he has this very strange way of, of dealing with his anger that I find quite funny. Um, but, I, yeah, it's that kind of surrealist, absurdist humor that Lynch is known for uh, that I, I, it's a very welcome element in this film, I think. I, I, I think the film would become quite suffocating without it, even though those segments do seem not very important to the plot, you know, and, and a lot of those bits do seem to be setting up again, other plot threads for, for later resolution in a, in a perspective TV series. Uh, but I, I'm glad the film has them because they, they just provide welcome relief. Uh, and the hitman scene you mentioned too, is another, uh, another very absurd series of events that, uh, is also very darkly comedic. So, Oh man, I laughed so hard at that scene. Yeah, I laughed so hard at that hitman scene. It is just—I <laughs> <laughs> mean, just the sequence of events: the gunshot that goes through the wall and hits another woman, uh, the the fire alarm going off at the end, and then happen to just escape out the fire escape. It just—it just is hilarious how that scene plays out. I mean, it's 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 like classic David Lynch, right? I mean, yeah. it really is. And I agree with you. I think if you take at a pure like plot level, the Adam Kesher stuff doesn't really need to be there, and you know, you, it's one of those things where you kind of probably were a little locked into it because you were going to have this pilot, and things would have tied together over the course of several episodes, right? Um, but even just as it is, I think that this film would be weaker without that. Having seen it, 
it does add a certain comic relief. And it also, I think, gets at the point of Hollywood and of movies in a way that would be missing otherwise, right? I mean, it does give you a sense of you're watching a movie about movies, uh, about filmmaking, about the, the film industry, uh, everything down to just the absurdity about trying to get the right espresso for these mobsters that seem to be financing the picture, right? Uh, and it also really gets, I think, actually it does work itself into it thematically, maybe not from a pure plot structure point, but it does, the, having him there works things in thematically because there's the line, this is the girl, right? And that line comes up at three different points in the film, right? The first time is with that scene with the gangsters uh, where you have the ominous, like, this is the girl, like, you're going to do this, uh, and this is the girl that we've chosen, doesn't matter what you want. Then you have it later on when Adam is casting and he sees the Camilla Rhodes that's before uh, Rita becomes Camilla Rhodes auditioning for the part. And she is, so he said to say, this is the girl. So he calls him over and says, this is the girl. He casts her so that he can make the rest of the movie, right? Uh, so it plays out in that sense too. And then finally at the end, Betty, uh, or excuse me, at this point, Diane, slides the picture of Camilla over to the hitman and says, this is the girl, right? This is the girl he's being hired to kill. So that scene comes up over and over again. I think it is one of the things Lynch is very much interested in here is just the way the Hollywood show business system looks at women and how it chews them up and spews them out in different ways, right? And they're just the girl to get, right? Uh, and... I think that's a very important point thematically, and without the Kesher storyline being a part of it, you wouldn't be able to get that across. Yeah, it definitely reinforces just the theme of show business, right? And and the manipulation and the compromises and the kind of dirty deals that have to be made uh, for someone to survive in that industry long term frequently. Um but uh, yeah, the stylization extends to, you know, a, a lot of the visual elements and the, even the costume design. I mean, just the way the cowboy is dressed, right? He's kind of dressed like a 1950s TV cowboy, not like a real cowboy. Uh, there's always this reminder of of you're watching show business play out, you know, whether it be in front of the camera or behind the camera. Um, you mentioned Sunset Boulevard, you know, we see that sign and... And Rita, you know, take her name from from the um, Rita Hayworth poster. So yeah, there, there's this this constant reminder of you know the apparatus, the machine of of Hollywood, uh, and and how um, it can be you know, a very very destructive thing for sure. Well, and you Matt, you just kind of brought up just the filmmaking side of this. Obviously, we've spent a lot of time talking about the acting, the characters, and the the script, right, in terms of trying to make sense of it. But a big part of why I think this film is so good is because it is very well made. David Lynch uh, was nominated for the director Oscar for this. It was the only nomination the movie got, one of the rare times that's happened where only the director gets nominated and there's no other nominations for the film. Uh, that he, of course, like I said at the beginning, he won the uh, the award for best director at the Cannes Film Festival as well for this. I think it's one of his best works. I think it really is a, a wonderful achievement for him as a director. I think he gets really good work out of his performances, and I think he 
he makes a lot of good decisions with his crew. Uh, so it might be just worth kind of highlighting a few of the different key collaborators here. Peter Deming is the cinematographer. And I think the cinematography can be kind of overlooked here, uh, but it's very good. And uh, particularly I'm thinking of that first scene in the Winky's Diner, right? The the description of the 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 monster behind the the diner, which later is revealed to be a hobo that's kind of just decrepit looking, right? Um, just the way the camera kind of floats, it's, it creates sort of an energy in the scene and a sense of unease and nervousness. Uh, and it's not a shaky cam, and it's not even really handheld. It's almost just like the camera's just floating in air. Like it's almost like a, a hot air balloon or something like that just kind of moving around with a little bit of wind. Uh, and so it's just things like that are really, I think, great. Uh, and the sound design is fantastic. It's some of my favorite sound design in a film. Just the the way it incorporates Angela Bellamente's score and the way it uh, has that ambient noise that is always sort of unnerving throughout the film, right? Uh, and then at the same time can uh, quickly come, switch to something very jazzy uh, and always feel like everything's really fluid and moving together very nicely. So I just think there's some really in, uh, intelligent filmmaking taking place and some really good work behind the camera as well. Yeah, the sound design in particular is, is probably one of the things I appreciate most about uh, Lynch's films. He obviously pays a lot of attention to that and and, and recognizes how important that is. Um and, and yeah, this is a great example, and, and not a film you would expect to have such an intricate sound design, but it really does. I mean, it, as you said, there's very unnerving elements to the sound mix that are meant to uh, just increase that sense of dread or suspense or mystery, and and it's uh, yeah, very very well done. Uh, the, the winky scene in particular, I mean, just the sound. You know when that monster comes out from behind the uh, uh, the dumpster, and the and the immediate cutoff of the sound. I mean, I remember the first time seeing that scene; uh, it was really powerful. It's just like, and, and that's one scene that's completely disconnected from the rest of the film, right? It's like, well, what is this scene? Why is this scene here? Uh, but man, it just sucks you in and it's such an effective piece of filmmaking uh, for such a short uh, short segment. But I, I think much of that has to do with the sound design. Very much so, yeah. I think, and of course that scene, uh, like you said, it's very disconnected. There is obviously the later meeting at the Winkies when Diane is setting up the hit on Camilla and you see the man who is talking about his dream there. And so people might say, oh, well, that was something she saw and she associates it and she creates this this scene or something like that out of that. Uh, but I don't know that that's a perfectly satisfying answer. And again, it gets back to the fact that that scene and what it's being talked about there may have been something that was going to be developed later, assuming again that that was a part of what Lynch shot for the pilot. Maybe he didn't shoot that for the pilot. Maybe he yeah. brought it in later on. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult film to interpret just because it's hard to know exactly what happened? I mean, the first part of it was shot back in 99, I think. And then it was almost two years later before they finished everything, right? So there's there's a definite gap in the filmmaking that took place there. And I'm sure a lot of things changed for a lot of the people involved with it, right? Um, but so there, still, there I are think no, just a really well-made film. 
sorry to interrupt you there, but there are no known copies of the TV pilot version of this film. Uh, is there like a a bad quality VHS out there somewhere that just has this as a TV pilot? I don't pilot? think so. Yeah, I don't think so. I think uh, I think Lynch has kept that thing pretty tight. I think I think he's right. I think he rightly understands that if you overexplain this. It takes away the appeal of this film, right? The part of the appeal of the film is the the mystery and the unsolvability of the mystery on some level, right? And you can offer an interpretation, but that interpretation doesn't perfectly answer anything. And it also ultimately, I think you get to the point where you go, well, maybe I could say what's real, what's not real, but then it raises the question, but what's it saying, right? What's the film about? And I think it is about something important. I mean, I think it really is trying to get at the, the, the damaging nature of, of our illusions. And I think the fact that uh, our show business really does do a lot of harm to a lot of young women. Uh, I think that's a real issue that doesn't get commented upon. And I think the film, obviously coming from that world, David Lynch lives right in L.A., probably sees it very clearly all the time. Uh, I think he has a, in his films an often uh, fixation with this point. And so that's something that he's trying to address here. Well, Matt, maybe we could turn our attention here to Criterion's release. Uh, I have the Blu-ray. I know you still have the old original DVD that was released. I think, was it released by Universal? Is that right? That put out the original disc? Yeah, with no chapter stops, which is, yes, I still say, the most pretentious thing I've ever seen on a DVD. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and it's the same on the Criterion Blu-ray. There's no chapters as well. Um, I guess I could say at one level I, I'm willing to give Lynch a little bit of credit that, hey, it's nice to just try to force people to watch your film through in one sitting. But you can always pause. I mean, like once it's on home video, it's it's I could pause, I can stop, I can do all these things. So I, I think it's it's a, a, a worthless fight on his part yeah, uh, to silly. do that. But has he done that for any of his other films, or is it just this one? I think it's just this one, right? I thought Eraserhead, too. I could be wrong about that, but okay. I thought Eraserhead doesn't have any tra- chapter sh- uh, chapter stops on it. Okay. Uh, but I didn't like Eraserhead, so I haven't gone back to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I've got Blue Velvet on DVD. I'm pretty sure it does have chapter stops, so yeah. I, I don't think he uh, has exercised that. Uh, on on all of his video releases. No, I I think you're right because I'm pretty sure the Wild at Heart Blu-ray that I have has chapters, and I, I'm pretty sure um, the because um, we, we all we all know DVD that the straight story, out, so. you know, the straight story needs to be experienced as one continuous film, and yes, God forbid if yes. we if that we is skip a hell of a ahead. movie, by the way, by the way. Uh, the Straight Story is a great movie of his. It's totally out. It's actually the most unique of David Lynch's because there's nothing about it that would really make you think it's a David Lynch film. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but um, but no, this is I think a very good release. Uh, the Blu-ray, uh, it, it's it looks great, it sounds great, and a really good collection of extras. And what I like about the extras is there's a lot of interviews with Lynch, with Naomi Watts, with, uh, with the other cast, uh, with some of the crew. But they also, you know, they give you stories. There's even about a half hour of behind-the-scenes footage showing the different takes and what they were doing on set, which is really great. Uh, 
But it also doesn't overexplain. You know, there isn't like, oh, if I watch the special features, I'll be able to make sense of how to interpret this, that, or the other, right? Uh, I think it does a great job of that. And there's even a deleted scene uh, with Robert Forster uh, that uh, is included there. So it's, it's uh, I think, a very good release. And, of course, the, the news that came out recently, Matt, this will be one of the first uh, titles from Criterion to be getting a 4K UHD release. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I plan to upgrade, and I'll give you my old Blu-ray in the process here. So if, you, if you're interested in it, it's very very generous of you. Thank you. Well, what I, if I don't give it to you? I'm going to have to put it in like a half-price books, and I wouldn't want to do that, right? So, yeah, they'll give you like fifty um, cents for it. Exactly, exactly. So you can have it, Matt, free of charge. Um, but since uh, you know it's not anything for us to necessarily discuss on the release here, nonetheless, uh, we get to our final question, which is, does Mulholland Drive belong in the Criterion Collection? I, I think it's worth including. You know, I, again, I'm not a huge Lynch fan, and I, 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 I don't want to sound like I'm you know, putting down his work too much here. He's just a filmmaker that hasn't really resonated with me. I, I can really appreciate his films, and I... I Again, I do think he's a very intelligent filmmaker. I do think this is one of his best films, uh, for sure. So if you're going to include some of his work, I think this should be included. Uh, It's a film that I think has been built up to be a lot more than what it is. And I think Lynch is very happy to perpetuate that that, uh, attitude toward this film. Uh, But it, it remains... A fascinating piece of cinema. It's really steeped in in mythology and interesting commentary on on filmmaking in general. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say go ahead and include it. I would definitely want it in there as a contemporary film. It's I think very good, very important uh, in terms of just uh, a couple of levels. What is the unintentional sense of how movies and TVs, uh, excuse me, how movie and TV has really blended together, right? Uh, and this is a certain sense by happenstance seeing that take place, right? Um, cinema has expanded very much so, and I think television series now very much are the forefront of cinematic uh, quality. And so it, it's kind of just was a precursor of that in a certain sense. Uh, I think it's also one of Lynch's finest works. Probably, actually, I, I'd say it is his best film. Uh, and as a director, that's fairly influential. I think it's important to put his work in there. Uh, and then lastly, I think this film actually did have a, something of an impact. I mean, it's certainly a, a critical darling more than it is a commercial darling. Uh, it, but it, it nonetheless, I think, did kind of influence certain other things that came after it. Uh, I think that it you know, certainly is a well-regarded film of these past 20 years. Uh, one of the most acclaimed, and I would say it rightly so. I think it's probably one of the 10 best films uh, of the past 20 years easily. So I would agree that it should be in the Criterion Collection. You, you do make an interesting point, though, about modern TV series uh, being kind of more in this vein. I, I it, it was a film that was probably made at, at the wrong time or, or a TV show that was made at the wrong time. I think today uh, this would have been picked up as a series and it would have been very interesting to see where it would have gone. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. If, if he had been pitching this uh, in 2019 or something like that to Showtime or HBO or Netflix, they would have ordered 10 episodes without thinking twice about it. And it could have become something very different for sure. Well, thank you for listening to us as we talked about David Lynch today. Uh, it was actually a little more linear and coherent than I thought it was going to be, Matt. So <laughs> there we go. Uh, but please join us again next month when we'll be speaking about Youth of the Beast from Saijun Suzuki. Thank you and keep collecting.